When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Now, this is actually our second episode on John Marshall as part of the special series, A Seat at the Table. As I was starting to think about approaching John Marshall in his role as Secretary of State, I knew that once we got past his cabinet years, we really got to the heart of why John Marshall is remembered in the present day. And we really got to the point of his greatest impact in American history. And so it seemed... It just seemed to be doing a disservice to that life and legacy to just do one episode and kind of have that wrapped up in a very short amount of time. And thus, I invited on some special guests to help us to understand a bit more about Marshall's time after he left the cabinet and joined the Supreme Court and during his tenure as Chief Justice. So I'm very pleased and so grateful to be joined by Ben Lovelace and Matthew Nickel, who are museum educators at the John Marshall House in Richmond, Virginia. Ben and Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Absolutely. So before we get started, I wanted to give both of y'all an opportunity to introduce yourselves and tell us a bit more about the John Marshall House and your work there. Yeah, uh, so... I'm Ben, by the way, Ben Lovelace. Uh, I'm a museum educator with Preservation Virginia. We are a statewide nonprofit that operate a number of historic sites. Me and my friend Matthew here, uh, we work specifically out of the John Marshall House in Richmond, Virginia. Our work uh, really just revolves all around uh, John Marshall, his life, his impact, his legacy, and of course, some of the people that are closest to him. So we are responsible for developing um, educational programs. Um, We do uh, special tours. We do virtual learning stuff. Over the years, um, we've really begun to kind of uh, expand um, the different kind, the different facets of history that we're exploring. Um, So we have, you know, programs ranging from Revolutionary War history to judicial history um, to the history of enslavement um, and its impact on Marshall's legacy. And I'm Matthew Nickel. I'm a museum educator here um, as well. I have not been here as long as Ben has. Um, he's been here for a few years now. I just got started in uh, early 2021. So I'm kind of uh, finding my secure footing uh, here now in 2022. But as for me, my particular focus is legal legacies. And also we have other programs, uh, specifically including John Marshall Service in all three branches of the federal government. So that really, um, I think, will be relevant to the viewers of this podcast who are interested in learning more about how Marshall's service in the executive and the legislative branches really carried over and turned his judicial career into the one that is so well-remembered. So that's really what I'm most excited for through this opportunity here. 
But also here at the John Marshall House, we really do remember, of course, the people who made that life possible. And that's, of course, not just the 8 to 16 enslaved individuals who were um, at the house at any given time, but also upwards of about 250 to 300 people across his numerous properties in the state of Virginia, mostly in Henrico and Fauquier counties. Those people, the wealth that was accrued through their labor really made John Marshall's 34 years, you know, his ability to sit back, take so much time to put careful thought into his court opinions that we remember and that judges to this very day continue to cite. That really has um, the continued impact as it goes forward. So I know I didn't talk as much about myself there and kind of delved more into our spiel, but that really is, um, I, I think, my biggest focus every day when I go to work at the John Marshall House. Yeah. And I have no doubt we're going to be digging into a lot of that history in the, in the coming minutes here. Absolutely. I was just about to say in your introduction, you hit on quite a few points and and really what makes John Marshall such an important figure to study, because there is so much to unpack about his life, his legacy, what he meant for his time and what it means for our time. And so to get us started thinking about that and especially thinking of his role in the court, you know, naturally, as this was early on in the history of the Supreme Court, the court operated during Marshall's tenure much differently than it does nowadays. In terms of how the court functions, what impact did John Marshall as Chief Justice have? And beyond the obvious changes that come with general technological advancements, how different was the court at the end of his tenure from how the Supreme Court functions today? Well, I can start by saying that it vastly expands the assumed jurisprudence of the court. In John Jay, the first chief justice, in his eight years as chief justice, he saw eight cases, which is unbelievable for our modern eyes today. Um, It seems the Supreme Court is almost always looking at cases. And really, John Marshall's the one who's responsible for that. In John Marshall's 34 years on the court, he saw over 1,100 cases which is just a significantly higher number there. The J Court heard very few cases. They did hear largely uh, the ones that had to do with contract disputes and maritime law. That would serve to have a pretty uh, significant precedent there. But John Jay left after eight years because he saw the job as lacking in, uh, and these are his words, energy, wit, and dignity. He decided to run for a statewide seat as governor of New York rather than be a lifetime appointment as chief justice. And so really, John Marshall is coincidentally enough, um, ironically enough, he is kind of a last choice for John Adams there. Jay turned it down after being offered the position again in 1801. Marshall is really the last choice there. And by the end of his 34 years, I don't think you could really uh, no, you can no longer say that it was a body that was lacking in those three qualities that Jay mentioned there. And Marshall's court really maintained the court's, uh, the court's authority and built upon it. He built the authority to settle contract disputes, expanding the jurisprudence in regards to issues such as paper money, and I should note the institution of slavery as well, which we'll delve on later in the program. The rights of free black individuals will definitely come up a lot in Marshall's court. And of course, an emerging national market and a national economy. Yeah, I so me me personally, I, I've I've become pretty fond over the years of uh, Kent Newmeyer's biography on John Marshall, 
it's it's a really impressive biography. Um, and although I don't agree with him 100% of the time on his interpretations of Marshall, I do think that he does a really good job of kind of succinctly um, summarizing uh, the, the sort of legacy of Marshall and that how he really innovated, you know, not just the Supreme Court, but the judicial branch um, as a whole. And to kind of you know reference your, your initial question is, you know, how differently did the court function at the end of his career versus how it functions today? And I think that uh, Kent Newmeyer he sums it up very nicely when he says, uh, one only has to compare the effort of the Marshall Court to settle the aforementioned issues that uh, Matthew is speaking about, um, contract disputes, national markets, um, slave cases. He says that you only have to compare those with the modern court um, as they are asked to find authority for desegregation, abortion rights, gay rights, and equal voting rights in the 14th Amendment of 1868, which was designed primarily to grant a, a modicum of civil equality to newly freed slaves. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Now, as far as uh, Marshall's impact on the court during his time, um, I do again defer to Kent Newmeyer. According to him, Marshall's uh, greatest impact on the court was the consolidation of the power to interpret the Constitution. Um, and that is the true meaning of judicial review. Again, one of those buzzwords that I'm sure we're going to talk about a little bit more here later on. But he's doing this at a time when it was possible to extract with a certain degree of precision exactly what the words of the Constitution meant. Marshall wasn't in the room when they were signing the Constitution, but he was there for Virginia's ratification debates. And he's the first person to really take up cases that ask, you know, constitutional questions. What does this document mean? What impact does it have on the government? And how do we resolve these issues? And Marshall is able to do that um, over the course of his career, his, his very long career. And I should also add that at the Virginia ratifying conventions of 1788, one of Marshall's big terms of defense that he would use to counter claims made by those like Patrick Henry and George Mason, that the president would be too powerful. Uh, the Congress would be dictated too much by the passions of the people and would turn basically the country into a mobocracy. Yeah. And also um, Patrick Henry and Mason had a lot of qualms with the opening lines of the Constitution, uh, the preamble, we the people. Henry was kind of offended by that. He would go, what does that even mean? What does that phrase, we the people, mean? Does that mean the states will just cease to exist? Will we just be dictated by whatever a majority of whoever has to say? This was a serious matter of debate that really this entire convention hinged on. 
one of Marshall's key phrases that he used to defend against this attack was that there would be a strong independent judiciary to counter the other two branches of government. And it's ironic enough that that's part of the message that one could argue is what wins the convention. It's a vote of 89 to 79 in favor of ratification. And Virginia being the largest colony, uh, the largest state during that time, it really would have greatly impacted American history had the vote gone the other way. And yeah. it almost did. Yes. You know, some, some historians have definitely argued, um, and I do think that there is an argument here, but that the legitimacy of the Constitution really hinges on Virginia's ratification of it, um, it being you know, such a, a powerful state. And to kind of, and I, I, I have to bring this up just because uh, Marshall brought up, pa- or excuse me, Matthew here, he brought <laughs> up Patrick Henry during the ratification debates. You know, Patrick Henry's a really complicated, fascinating figure. Um, you've, okay. you've delved into him yourself <laughs> quite a few times on the podcast over the years. But uh, Marshall advocates specifically for that principle of judicial review during those ratification debates before, you know, uh, the, 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 this independent judiciary really even exists as an institution. Specifically, it's when Patrick Henry says that this constitution that we are debating could be used to free slaves. And Marshall is actually the one who says, well, actually, it's an independent judiciary's role to ensure that that doesn't happen. They are there to strike down laws and declare them null and void if they do something as, as crazy as, as freeing black people in the state. And Marshall certainly would uh, use that principle for that effect. Oh, yeah, most definitely. Absolutely. And we'll definitely be circling back around to that. But it's just it's so fascinating. And I, I know for frequent listeners of the podcast, you know, we've hit upon these points, not just with the first special episode on John Marshall. You know, there's this clear thread throughout his life and career, these ideas that would, whenever he became chief justice, you know, would become bedrocks of the American judiciary and our legal system. But then also this point at the Virginia Ratification Convention and just how how close it came to not going through and, and not having the Constitution be ratified by this key state. And to have Marshall as a part of this and to know that he had this this clear he had a vision. Clear vision, yeah, yeah. Clear vision of how this could go. And it's just, it, it's so fascinating. And I think that's one thing that surprises listeners. And I've heard folks talk about this before, you know, the, the fact that the court before Marshall, you could have not one, but two chief justices travel to Europe to do diplomacy because they had so little to do. And to see in his 34 years how this completely reshaped and and but it didn't have to be that way it didn't have to be that the federal constitution that federal law superseded state law and the fact that he had such a role in that was just really fascinating yeah and it's and i i and i, I like to i also want to throw in there that for Depending on who you ask, there there are some historians that say that Virginia was, I don't think that they really make this argument anymore, but they do say that Virginia was the final state to ratify the Constitution, um, sending it into effect. I think that the actual answer to that is that it was Vermont mm-hmm. and that Virginia follows shortly after that, but Virginia itself wasn't aware that Vermont had ratified it. So I, I think what they say is it was New Hampshire that was the ninth state. Excuse me. Yeah, that, that I, sounds yeah. right. They, they both look the same on the map. So yeah. yeah. yeah it's <laughs> 
But New Hampshire, I think, votes uh, for confirmation just like less than a week yeah. before Virginia does. But because of how slow yeah. news travels, yeah. I mean, Virginia really does get the center of all that attention. Yeah. Well, and I remember from the um, the second pre-presidency episode for Madison, Madison sent a an express rider to Alexander Hamilton to let him know, oh, it's done. We ratified the Constitution. You know, it's going into effect. And then he got word, no, New Hampshire beat Virginia. But yeah. It, it still does, you know, if Virginia hadn't joined, what would that mean? And especially considering that North Carolina, you know, my home state didn't ratify until after George Washington became president. You know, it, what would that have meant? Would North Carolina have not ratified eventually? What would it have meant? We don't know. But the fact that he had that role in that was just, it's just, it's really fascinating. And, you know, I, I think as we go along, we'll see a bit more of that. But to turn to more of a personal note for a moment, because one of the things with presidencies that we like to do is, is really understand that these are people with lives of their own, as well as being these monumental figures in American history. So would y'all mind telling us what was life like for the Marshall family while John served as chief justice? Did his family accompany him while he traveled for court work or did they remain in Richmond? So unfortunately, uh, this is an area where we have very scant information, but we know that Polly did travel with John to Philadelphia on some occasions. Polly being his wife. Polly being John Marshall's wife. Uh, They were married in 1783. They moved to Richmond very shortly after that. Marshall continues a law practice in Richmond that really prompts the move to that city and the construction of his home there that we uh, work at today. We know that she gives birth to one of their children there in Philadelphia when Marshall is serving as a congressman. So it's either in 1798 or 1799 during that period. We know that Marshall mentions an overseer in a letter to Polly. And usually in letters, she is written to as though she's the one running the household and making decisions, which kind of leads us to make an assumption there that she's going to be at home a large period of these times. She's probably going to remain in Richmond. Her health was definitely in a very precarious state throughout the 1790s going into the early 1800s. And that's, of course, what's very common during this period is just the toll, both physically and mentally, that childbirth has on a mother and as a wife during this period here. So we see around 1803, uh, just a couple years after Marshall joins the court, her health really begins to decline. So her traveling will definitely become much less frequent than whatever levels it was before that. She's largely going to stay in Richmond, staying with her uh, parents, the Amblers, both uh, Jacqueline and Rebecca Burwell Ambler. They'll be living there in Richmond during this time. So this is really where she's going to remain, either that or their Oak Hill estate that's up in Fauquier County for a large part of the last 20 years or so of her life. But we do know that by 1801, as for as for the children in this regard, most of Marshall's children would have been born by this time. The oldest, Thomas, was born in 1784, so he's about in his late teens during this time. Uh, he would have been finishing his studies at Princeton College during this time. And his other children, they would come to maturity and receive their education along this time that uh, their father is serving as chief justice early in this early in his tenure. But as to the details of their education, as to uh, the details of how, where they would have been, where they would have been traveling to, how frequently they came to Washington D.C. to visit their father while he's uh, serving on the bench, 
we just can't really answer that with any definitive uh, um, a, assurance. A little note on their education, though. You know, our best assumptions can be made. We do know a fair amount about John Marshall's education. He's he is largely educated on the what was then the frontier of Virginia in modern day Fauquier County at the foot of the Blue Ridge Mountains. And we do know that there are certain things that uh, were valued in his education. Um, obviously, you know, reading and writing, they study a lot of English literature. Alexander Pope's poetry and his essays on morals were really important. So I can only imagine that his children are also reading those. And they do learn how to speak foreign languages. John Marshall would learn how to speak French. Um, the girls, they do learn how to play instruments. In fact, at, at, a, at the, the house, we actually have a harp that belonged to one of John Marshall's sisters, Elizabeth, whom they called Liza. So, you know, knowing what we know about John Marshall's education, we can only assume that that was actually probably expanded on a bit Mm -hmm. um, for his children. And, you know, a lot of them go on to, you know, have pretty prominent careers. Um, The eldest son, Thomas Marshall, he would would, uh, run for public office in Virginia and win. We know that one of his sons becomes a doctor. Mm -hmm. um, They become attorneys, um, things like that. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, Matthew. No, no, you're fine. Yeah, so we do know, basically, um, as Ben said, that whatever education the children would have, it would have been substantially more than what John Marshall has. But because John Marshall's the one who so many remember for his primary role, we tend to know more about his youth experience. And what's kind of interesting about his youth, um, if I can kind of go on a tangent about that <laughs> a little bit, is Absolutely. a lot of like a lot of the stories that go into Marshall's youth kind of correlate with like that uh, frontier, uh, rural upbringing. Like imagine all the all the stories around Abraham Lincoln's upbringing. Or somebody like Daniel Boone. You almost get kind of Daniel Boone vibes when you read about uh, John Marshall's early years. And I think it's very interesting. He'd grow up basically in a one-room log cabin uh, before moving to a house that still stands today called the Hollow House. That's up in Fauquier County near his Oak Hill estate. Um, near his place of birth, too. And there's an active preservation project to preserve that historic site as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Doesn't look so great right now, but hopefully someday. Yeah. Absolutely. But Marshall basically is the first of 15 children that come to uh, Thomas Marshall, who's a local land surveyor and a close, uh, um, I would say probably not in childhood, but in like early adulthood, he becomes associated with George Washington through their surveying duties, as well as uh, Mary Randolph Keith Marshall, who is um, through that prominent Randolph family that others like Thomas Jefferson, John Randolph of Roanoke, um, who I've heard come up very frequently in your narrative. They are all cousins of John Marshall's. And I think that's fascinating because Marshall is so radically different from those other members of his family. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that he doesn't have that mainly aristocratic upbringing. Yeah. Like those like Jefferson and John Randolph have and other people like Edmund Randolph. They all grow up on plantations. They get large amounts of money that's um, through large amounts of enslaved labor as well. And John Marshall in this regard, um, he's definitely growing up surrounded by slavery, but definitely a smaller amount than what he will himself purchase and acquire over, over uh, his years. Yeah. And it it probably should be noted that his upbringing is definitely still, you know, I'd say objectively better than like the average person's Um, like, you know, his family does have access to the Fairfax library, but it is definitely, you know, it's, it's not a very like, you know, say Jeffersonian or even Washington esque uh, upbringing. It is a little bit different. Then eventually he does kind of marry into that aristocracy. He marries into the Ambler household, which is a very prominent uh, Tidewater aristocratic family. Well, and it's fascinating because, and I think y'all get to a point that, you know, maybe this was part of the reason why Marshall was so different was kind of his 
his upbringing and his start in these, you know, different environment than some of these other figures who were still a part of the same family. But, you know, and I, I did read, if I'm remembering correctly, that it was his grandmother on his mother's side who was just kind of shunned from the Randolph family. And that was part of the reason why they, they went to more of the wilderness setting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, her, her name is escaping me, but if I remember correctly, it was believed or maybe it was true that she had some kind of like extramarital affair, which is just, uh, you know, for a Randolph, that's a huge faux pas right there. And that, you know, definitely affects the, 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 the family dynamic, um, for, for generations, it appears. Oh, if I, if I can interject for a minute, I think her name was Mary Isham. Yes. 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 Mary Isham. Yeah. Yeah, there, there was a bizarre story that comes out of uh, that story. Uh, essentially, like, the family concocts this uh, theory, um, according to some, that the man had left her. The man had abandoned her. And then eventually a story would come up that uh, their child would be found dead on an island in the James River. And... I don't really know all the details about this. I, but this is the first time I'm hearing this. I didn't even know about this. <laughs> I, th- I, think it's in, I think it's in Gene Edward Smith. Um, I might, oh, I, you I, know what? Never mind. I have read about this yeah, before. I, I don't know what the authority on this story is. Yeah, I think um, I think that this mostly comes from like sort of like oral history, family tradition stuff, mm-hmm. yeah. um, which is very difficult to nail down. But I do, I actually do remember Gene Edward Smith mentioning this, um, and he doesn't, he doesn't cite a whole lot of sources when he talks about it. Yeah, so I don't know how much authority that could bring yeah. on, but I think it's very uh, interesting nonetheless. It's definitely, it's definitely, you know, it's 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 definitely interesting to consider it. Absolutely, and and the Randolph family in general is good for good stories, oh, yeah. <laughs> whether yeah, they're actually true or not. Yeah. <laughs> well, and and as y'all mentioned, and, you know, we've we've kind of touched upon this numerous times. And just like other members of the Randolph family as well, you know, Marshall was a slave owner. Slavery was a part of his life from an early age. And so as he grew to more prominence and you know, made the move to Richmond, and y'all already mentioned that between eight and 16 individuals were enslaved at the site of the John Marshall House during his life. Would y'all mind sharing what do we know about these individuals and their lives and what work has been done at the house to explore and share information about them? So this is the part portion of the podcast where we definitely have to give a proper shout out to, to, to uh, one former educator and one current educator at the John Marshall House, um, Lydia Neuroff. She was with us for a short time um, and she has since gone on to become the uh, uh, project manager for Virginia Untold with the Library of Virginia. But alongside her, uh, Emma Clark, uh, still currently working with us as uh, museum educators, they have really dedicated themselves um, to, to researching the enslaved history, not only on the property, but uh, you know across all of Virginia as it pertained to the Marshall family. Um, and they have really left no stone unturned. You know, research and interpretation is definitely a communal and ongoing effort, but these two talented women that I look up to quite a bit myself, um, they've both done an extraordinary amount of uh, legwork sifting through the Marshall Papers specifically, as well as numerous other sources to find every mention of enslaved individuals and compile what sources we have that tell us about these individuals' lives. 
And these individuals and their narratives, um, they make their way into every tour, program, lecture, other form of historic interpretation that we produce for the public. Um, but that said, you know, to answer your question, we do have some pretty interesting details about a handful of individuals. Um, and we kind of just picked a few that we'd like to share um, with you guys about. One of the most uh, prominent figures at the John Marshall House um, would have been Robin Spurlock. We call him Robin Spurlock. He's never actually referred to as Spurlock in any documentation that we see, but we do know that one of his daughters does take on the name Spurlock later on. Robin Spurlock served as John Marshall's body servant, um, his valet, and his butler. He is believed to have served as some sort of an administrative center on the property. So he did have a a sort of heightened status over the other enslaved people on the property. Um, And because of that, um, his life was a little bit different than the others. For example, we know that he has a family. Um, His family is never broken up, which is a practice that's not only common in American slavery, but it's a practice that John Marshall himself engages in. He breaks up enslaved families and sends them to different places. There is also a, a... oral tradition, I guess, that has somehow survived the test of time that says that Robin didn't even live on the property. He lived in a separate house in a neighborhood called Jackson Ward, not too far from the site of the John Marshall House. Um, We haven't found any documentation that really supports that, uh, but it is something that's, for whatever reason, that story has permeated its way through the generations of people who interpret uh, at the John Marshall House. Additionally, though, uh, Robin Spurlock, like I mentioned, he does have a family. He has a son, Robin Jr. Um, he has a daughter, Agnes. Um, we knew, do know that uh, Agnes would have served as an enslaved nursemaid on the property. Um, nursemaids are, to, to, to put it broadly, they're responsible for child care. And of course, child care, especially when you have young children, is kind of a 24-7 job. So enslaved wet nurses and enslaved nursemaids, um, they probably would have been sleeping in the house, probably on the landings at the top of the stairs. The other enslaved people would have been living in the various outbuildings on the property. So they had a laundry, a kitchen. Um, They probably slept in lofts above their workspaces that they were attached to. Uh, uh, Henry, uh, he was responsible for running the kitchen. Um, John Marshall does have a kitchen on the property right behind his house. Um, We don't have any physical evidence for the kitchen. We have documents, though, that show. uh, So we have like insurance um, and tax documents that show that there was a stable, a laundry, a law office, a smokehouse, um, and of course, um, that kitchen that Henry would have been responsible for running and preparing the meals for not only the Marshall family, but um, all of their guests. We know that the Marshall family very frequently um, entertains at the house. There is one individual that I I wanted to bring up um, because he has actually sort of beaten Matthew and I onto the Presidency's podcast. Uh, uh, it was actually just yesterday I was listening again to your Marbury versus Madison episode, and you open up the episode reading a letter um, uh, that John Marshall sends from Raleigh when he's on riding circuit about how he uh, didn't have his pants with him. Um, well, in that letter, I don't know if it—I don't know if it was quoted directly on the podcast, but in that letter, it is made clear that uh, this this man, this enslaved man by the name of Peter did travel with John Marshall. Um, So if he traveled that one time, we can only assume he probably traveled other times as well. Um, But he was the one that was responsible for packing um, the Chief Justice's clothes. um, And apparently he forgot his pants and that uh, put Marshall in a bind. He was in in, in a lot of trouble trying to find himself a pair of suitable pants. Um, So Peter, uh, at least indirectly, um, he was on the presidency's podcast before anybody else from the John Marshall house was. Jim Actor um, is an interesting figure that I've um, been pretty fascinated by lately. The sources for Jim um, are, uh, 
we'll say dicey. Um, the big, the 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 uh, most important mention that we have of him uh, comes from uh, a 1901 Richmond Dispatch article um, that says that this man by the name of Jim Actor was John Marshall's body servant before Robin was, and that Robin somehow beat him for like beat him out for the job like he did a better job and jim actor was relegated to no longer being the chief justice's body servant um the source on that does come from 1900 and we think it's descendants that probably tell us about that source so uh, some of the more intricate details of jim actor we don't know how much we could trust those Um, other than that it seems like he probably did exist and then um israel is a really fascinating figure as well and the last one that I'll, i'll i'll bring up here um John Marshall engages in a pretty common practice. Um, This is particularly common in urban settings where the enslaver um, will essentially rent out the labor of those that they enslave to other places. Israel, he was frequently sent out to the coal mines in Midlothian. Uh, Midlothian is uh, around Richmond. Um, They're not known for coal production to this day, but they were during John Marshall's lifetime. Israel was frequently sent out to these coal mines. Um, Now, Israel is really fascinating because we know that he self-emancipates a number of times. He runs away. Um, And we actually have multiple articles that Marshall takes out in uh, newspapers uh, with a reward um, seeking uh, Israel's return. I don't know if he ultimately does permanently get away, um, but we do know that he uh, engages in that practice of self-emancipation a number of times. Matthew, did you have anything that you wanted to add there in terms of individuals on the property? Well, there is um, uh, nothing I could really mention anymore about some of the people who would have been there. But as for our research um, processes a little bit more, there is, of course, the Journal of Slavery and Data Preservation, which is to be determined when it's going to be published. But it's currently under review. And this is kind of something that we've been considering um, through Preservation Virginia is, uh, and that's the enslaved.org project, correct? Yes, yes. yes. And uh, having our own version of enslaved.org, which is where Emma and Lydia put so much of these uh, documents under. Um, so this is all public information. We can Anybody who is interested can search for these people's names, can search for anybody who's affiliated with John Marshall and learn more about them. So when that is published, it will be on our website at uh, preservationvirginia.org. Um, but there are varying amounts of information. We have 64 named individuals out of the 250 to 300. So unfortunately, that leaves so many who are forgotten in American history. And, and even with those that we do mention, sometimes the mention of their names could be the only time that these people are really remembered. But we believe his holdings came close to 300, if not 350, based on tax records that he had in Richmond, Henrico, and Fauquier counties. Yeah, um, it should be noted that John Marshall, by the end of his life, he owns about 150,000 acres of land, which is a pretty unthinkable amount of land. Um, and a lot of those properties are developed. There are um, structures, there are production things happening on those various properties. So there would have been a lot of enslaved individuals living and laboring on those various properties. And uh, other other names, um, like the ones that Ben already mentioned, they're names that come up more frequently, especially in our tours and our programs that we do. But others like Hannibal, um, that's a name that we only see mentioned once, and that's when he's purchased by Marshall in 1789. Of course, that leads others um, to kind of be more well-remembered than others. And Robin Spurlock is probably the one who comes up the most frequently in Marshall biographies. And sometimes that's kind of for, for ulterior reasons to kind of paint Marshall in a light of 
being a person who was not as harsh of a slave owner as others, because he offers Robin his freedom. But there's a problem with that narrative when it comes down to when looking at the actual codicil in the will. And that's something that we fortunately have possession of in our archives and our documents. And that shows um, three choices that are given forward to Robin in this uh, process here. The first choice is for Robin to take $50 and be provided passage to a northern state. Uh, where he'd leave, live out the remainder of his days as a free man. The second choice being uh, to take $100 and provide passage overseas to the colony of Liberia on the western shore of Africa. Now, Marshall and his involvement with the American Colonization Society could probably have an, an, a whole episode onto itself. Yeah. But to basically sum it up, he was president of the Richmond branch of uh, the ACS and actually one of his close colleagues, Bushrod Washington, President Washington's nephew and fellow Supreme Court justices, uh, he was president of the nationwide branch around this very time. So that will kind of tie into our conversation later that uh, when we talk about uh, Marshall's involvement and the court's role in the institution of slavery, because there's definitely a vested interest in slave owners like Marshall for colonization. And uh, it's not out of the most um, pleasant of motives, yeah. I should say. Marshall is definitely quoted as saying, and Paul Finkelman cites this in his book, Supreme Injustice. Marshall is quoted as saying in his ACS meetings that the freed black population of Richmond poses a threat because they are full of, quote, pests and criminals. Yeah. Now, what does that say to the freed black people about the freed black people of that town? Well, that would project a negative image. But if you look at the records of these individuals during this time. They're actually very successful businessmen. They're starting their own careers. They're starting their own entrepreneurships, uh, their own trades. And this is leading to a large amount of success and probably competition with white merchants and white townspeople here in Richmond. And that's probably where so much of this angst really comes from. And Marshall and other friends of his who work on the General Assembly, they're uh, going to really be incensed by this. And of course, we don't know if that's how, what Marshall feels explicitly, but we can kind of assume that based on the moods and temperaments of his colleagues. And we don't really see Marshall openly speaking out against these feelings. We can only assume that he's working in tacit agreement with them. So that leads the General Assembly after Gabriel's rebellion in 1800, um, which actually his close friend James Monroe is serving as governor of Virginia during that time. So one cannot really imagine them thinking too differently on this issue here. Uh, if you're a Virginia slave owner, your interest is going to be one in the same, whether you're a Federalist or a Democratic Republican. So essentially, uh, the General Assembly, a few years after this, passes a law in the General Assembly that says that anyone who is freed by their owner has to leave the state within 12 months. And if they refuse to do this, if they don't comply or if they fail to meet the deadline, they are essentially subjecting themselves up to capture and re-enslavement to a different owner in a different locality. Yeah. Um, that could be in Virginia, that could be further south. So that is pretty much a threat to the free black community here. And that leads to so much regression of that progress that has been made. But that's specifically a signal to Robin when he's looking at this in the will in 1835. After Marshall's already passed away, uh, we know because of his duties as a butler and valet, he had been sorting through Marshall's correspondence, reading his mail. So we definitely knew we, we definitely know that he knew how to read and write because of this. But Robin here, um, essentially, when looking over this will, he knows that he has to leave Virginia if he takes freedom. That's just what the law in the state says at the time. 
But we've already mentioned that he has a family here. And it's also worth mentioning he's been that butler for over 50 years. So he's definitely not a young man anymore. He's very much a member of the Richmond, not only enslaved community, but the free black community as well. Yeah, he's well respected within that community. He probably has close friendships and alliances with many of these prominent individuals, which leads to some kind of conspiracy theory mongering among the upper white class like Marshall, who probably suspect and Monroe suspects this as well. And I think there's actually letters to Jefferson uh, talking about this, where he essentially says that the free black community was working in conjunction with Gabriel to help plot this rebellion. So that's kind of this conspiratorial mindset that many like Marshall are going to have that lead to the advancement of these laws. So it's a really convoluted puzzle here. But um, when you really see here, just the effect that this would have on Robin and his family. And he's, I don't like using the word forced um, on tours, but I think people can kind of put two and two together and see that this is very coercive language that comes out of this will. You know, Robin being, uh, or excuse me, Marshall being chief justice for 34 years. If anybody knows the law, it's John Marshall. If anybody knows the law surrounding slavery, it's John Marshall. And he had any opportunity to go into a courthouse. He could have donned his black Supreme Court robes uh, to really get the effect in there that this is serious and say, look, my entrusted servant, Robin, these are his papers. I want him to be freed when I die. Can you arrange this for me? And he also was the one that was overseeing the federal circuit in Richmond. So he himself probably could have uh, signed off on Robin's freedom if he truly wanted that to happen. And that's a good point as well. And it's, and it, it should also be noted that um, in, in his will, you know, Marshall doesn't mention any of Robin's family members and we know that they exist and we're pretty, we're pretty sure that they're in Richmond. So, you know, even if he did have some desire to resettle elsewhere, his family's not coming with him. Um, so it puts him in a position where he has to choose between his own freedom and his family. And some and some Marshall biographers have attempted to kind of retrofit John Marshall and look at this will and say, you know, he, you know, he had this really, you know, friendly, um, you know, soft relationship with Robin. But, you know, with proper historical examination um, that, that, you know, you can't use this will to say that. And not to mention there are, you know, so many other individuals that are enslaved to him and his family. None of them get offered any kind of choices in his will. Yeah. In fact, he breaks up enslaved families with his will uh, a couple times, or, or there's a couple different iterations of it where he where he does that, um, which is 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 just terrible to think about. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and and on the podcast we come back to this point time and again because at this time and especially in those presidencies, you know, with so many of the Virginia presidents, with so many prominent Virginians in high places in the federal government, you know, we, we come back to these folks time and again, you know, we had the episode on Gabriel's rebellion and in the narrative, we've been seeing increasingly this, this discomfort within that white planter class in Virginia with the Haitian revolution and with increased slave rebellions and then we get to Jefferson and the episode that we did on the, the Hemings family and why Sally Hemings was never, was never emancipated, was technically still enslaved to her last day, but was given her time, which is the informal way of allowing her to live as if she was a free 
woman in Charlottesville, but she couldn't actually be free. And, and you get to those points, you know, that, that this was such a, a complex system and that there were some ways to kind of get around it. And especially for people as prominent and in the federal judiciary as John Marshall. And I think that's a very important point to note here. You know, he, he really could have done more. He didn't. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and, and, to, and I wanted to add on to your point, um, specific, specifically about Sally Hemings being, you know, quote, given her time, you know, Virginia law, at least in 1835, when Marshall um, passes away there, you know, manumission law is really strict. And Matthew already mentioned this. Um, if an enslaved person is manumitted, then they have 12 months to either petition a lower court, um, or I, I think it's the state legislature to approve of their status as a, as a free person. The, you know, that's the way the Virginia law reads. Um, and there's a lot of active research being done, um, not only by us, but other people as well, that seems to be finding that it was just really, that it was almost more common, like you said, for them to kind of exist in this gray area. They're given their time, but they don't seek that, that legal status as a free black person, just because the number of hoops one would have to j- jump through, presumably a person that has very little resources as well in order to obtain that free status. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you do, you know, the system and, and we've kind of talked about this in various episodes and um, we're actually going to talk about this with Dolly Madison as well. I've got some episodes coming out. I think it's going to be around the same time as this one on her life. And, you know, in her early days, you have this temporary loosening of Virginia law which allowed for manumission that was a bit easier because at that time it was thought that slavery was not profitable. And then you have the cotton gin, you've got increasing, you've got Gabriel's rebellion, you've got the Haitian revolution. You see this tightening of the laws and all these, all these laws being set up to discourage emancipating individuals, discouraging free blacks from being in Virginia and this very inequitable system being built and you know that continues on to the present day this this inequity and and you have continued investment from people like Marshall in the ACS to answer that question about you know what do we do with these free black people absolutely and you see in in the business dealings and in the way the system was being set up for individuals like Marshall to profit from enslaved labor, you see the reason why some of this is coming into play because, you know, John Marshall, as y'all mentioned, you know, he owned this 150,000 acres of land. He, he used this for his personal wealth. So he had a personal interest in supporting the slave system, the the enslavement of individuals. And so I was wondering if y'all would take a moment to talk about, you know, with these other, with these 350 individuals that he had over numerous properties, what other, what business ventures was Marshall engaged in during this portion of his career? How did these individuals tie into his, his personal wealth and, and the wealth and the economic status of the Marshall family? Yeah, so 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 given Marshall's prolific investment in not only the institution of slavery, but the slave trade as well, um, the slave markets in Chaco Bottom of Richmond are the second largest in the world, um, second to, to New Orleans. 
so, so, you know, given his, his prolific investment in the institution, it really is hard to isolate any portion of Marshall's career, whether that be his public and political life, um, his personal business ventures, or even his philanthropic pursuits as not being inherently intertwined with his investment in human capital. An example of that could be John Marshall's rural property that he owned along the Chickahominy River that Marshall occasionally used as a retreat um, and was noted for its production of hogs. Uh, Marshall, in fact, had a smokehouse on his Richmond property where he presumably smoked a fair amount of pork from this property. Um, It's our understanding that this property was not an insignificant source of income for Marshall, and it is believed that there would have been a large number of enslaved men and women living and laboring there. Um, I I think Paul Finkelman estimates there might have been anywhere from 50 to 75 at any given time. You know, even when seemingly uncontroversial portions of Marshall's life are discussed, take perhaps his involvement in uh, starting one of Richmond's first volunteer fire departments. It is difficult for one to not see at least a portion of the funds that are allowing Marshall to be a part of an objectively good endeavor. Fire departments are great. We all love our fire departments. Um, it's hard to not view that as being uh, you know, inherently attached, um, either directly or indirectly, to, to, to human chattel. And uh, we also know that Marshall purchased, sold, and hired out enslaved people very frequently throughout this time in his life. Uh, we already mentioned Israel, who was lent out to the Midlothian Mines. Uh, which I should mention today is actually um, open to the public as a park um, oh, in wow. Chesterfield County. So you can actually see uh, perhaps some of the places where Israel would have actually been working, which I think is phenomenal to actually be able to see that. Yeah. And uh, kind of to go into another example of this uh, practice that Marshall took part in, in 1784, uh, just as a young upstarting attorney in Richmond, um, he's not even 30 years old yet, we see Moses is lent out to a Mr. Lewis. And we know that Israel is sold to a Mr. Moses Austin, that worker of the coal mine. And Dicey and her child are bought by Marshall on July 4th, 1787 by John Johnston, and then is sold to Jacqueline Ambler, Polly's father. So we see a family connection coming into this as well. Uh, The labor is shared among family. It's shared among uh, individuals who work with John Marshall, who have personal correspondences with him. And uh, the last thing that I can really uh, safely tell you is that a Mr. George Webb Jr. and Mr. Charles Min Thurston both either sold or lent Marshall at least 16 enslaved individuals um, over a course of a given period. And it's difficult to really ascertain what business they were lent for, how much Marshall profited from it, if he profited from it at all. It's possible he could have been serving as a manager for these enslaved people, so just holding them for somebody else. But he definitely has at least some financial investment in this institution that goes outside of his own personal slave ownership. That much is absolutely clear. Well, and and y'all bring up so many points that, you know, are important to understand about the, the intricacies of enslavement and the Southern economy. And it's just, it, it is, and and especially like it ties into everything. It ties into the political system. It ties into the social system. It ties into families. You know, we've seen that now with uh, James Madison and everything happening in Orange County and the the relations in the the Madison family in that area. And it, you know, it's it's just such an intricate system. It it 
and I greatly appreciate y'all sharing this and, and sharing and the work that's being done at the John Marshall house and in Virginia in general to help us to understand. And, you know, one of the points that I think you, you brought up and that we touched on with the, um, with the Hemings family episode is that, you know, the enslaved people at the, in the domestic settings are generally the ones that we can find out more information about because you get their mentions in personal letters. You get more of this interaction between the white planner family and those that are enslaved. But it's important to note all of the other individuals, you know, even though we may not know their names to know that they were there and that they played a role in this economic system that benefited the Marshall family and others like them. So thank you so much for sharing all that. And so turning back to his judicial career, in terms of the precedent set during the Marshall Court, particularly with the institutionalization of concepts such as judicial review and the supremacy of federal law and the federal constitution over state law and state constitutions, you know, we've touched on this a little bit already, but do you see Marshall as being revolutionary in his judicial philosophy and interpretation, or was he part of a growing trend in judicial circles? Now, this is something I actually think that Ben and I have some disagreement on. Um, so this could lead to an interesting conversation. We're going to uh, fight right here on the <laughs> you, um, you're, you're ready for it, audience. Come on. <laughs> but um, as for me, I would go as far to say he was revolutionary to a certain extent. Marshall definitely would get a lot of his philosophy from others. And Ben will delve more deeply into those individuals in a minute. So I'll, I'll leave that to him to describe. But as for me, what makes Marshall so revolutionary is he takes, po- he takes philosophies, he takes ideals that have only been used in a localized environment, that have only been used in state courts, in local courts, during the time that America was colonies, and also used in British courts um, across the seas. But these are only done in localities. Um, at the most, like town ordinances get overruled by uh, the local court in the town. It's nothing like big and high stakes like we see with Marbury versus Madison. And one would argue that that case really wasn't as, uh, as definitive or as transformational as we acknowledge it as today. In that time, it was just a conversation about whether someone could get a commission. But in the long scope, we really start to see this get turned around into a larger ideal of judicial principles. What is the role the Supreme Court is going to play in the years to come? The first three chief justices, uh, John Jay, John Rutledge, and Oliver Ellsworth, failed to really make a lasting impact on the court because they were not willing to take the court outside of its very limited capacity that it had been originally granted to it. What makes Marshall's tenure so remarkable is that right off the bat, the first major case that comes to him, 1803, that case of Marbury versus Madison, he sets forth those principles of judicial review and removes them from just the state and local uh, localities that it had remained in and brings it to the national level to a scale really never seen in any country up to that time. So what Marshall does in this instance here is he lays the groundwork for a strong construction of judicial powers and builds upon that to allow the Supreme Court to rule in favor of a stronger national government. He really he codifies um, Hamilton's financial plans into federal law by essentially in the case of McCullough versus Maryland. 
by essentially laying down that, uh, yes, Congress and Congress alone has that ability to, dec- to create a national bank. A couple of years later, in Gibbons versus Ogden in 1824, he opens the gateways for huge financial growth, huge economic and trade growth for the nation at large by saying that only the federal government, only Congress, not the individual states, have the power to regulate commerce. And at the same time, he defines commerce as being anything that moves between state lines. So that is a very broad definition, right? So that essentially leaves leaves here a vast array of interpretations that could come down in the years to come. We especially see this come up during the Warren Court years in the 1950s, in the age of desegregation. We see this during the civil rights policies that are taken up by the Kennedy and Johnson administrations in the 1960s. They really take up, you know, the charge of, hey, these individuals have gotten on these buses. They've crossed across our interstate highway system. That's another, you know, uh, matter of interstate commerce, right? And these people have been attacked in southern states. You know, these buses get firebombed and attacked by segregationists. So what does that lead to? That gives grounding now for the federal government to step in and protect these individuals. Because commerce, under Marshall's broad interpretation from so many years before, is not just goods. It's not just crates of wheat and barley and supplies that are needed for next year's crops. It is also people. And that also has a negative connotation with that as well, because look, think of the lifetime that Marshall's living in. If you're interpreting that to mean that could include people, well, what, what does that tell to Virginians like John Randolph of Roanoke under matters uh, concerning slavery and the moving of enslaved people across state lines? If Congress can regulate interstate commerce, does that mean can Congress can step in to regulate slavery? and stop its spread in that regard there. And I know we've already delved into this and some of the listeners could be scratching their heads thinking, wait, if Marshall's such a prolific slave owner, how could he be making policies that curtail slavery? And that's just the thing. He never does. But this is part of the, I I like to say, conspiracy mindset that really pervades many people in the South starting around this time period. And that leads to concepts such as nullification, and of federal laws, which I should mention starts with Marshall's not so good friend Jefferson <laughs> and continues on, gets really taken up by John C. Calhoun in the years to come and ends up being the entire impetus for the Civil War because they secede from the Union as a result of Lincoln's election. All of this feeds into, again, and, and there were cries of secession in the wake of Gibbons versus Ogden, which of course Many people reading Gibbons versus Ogden today would probably be falling asleep because it's just about steamboat rights and uh, breaking up a state monopoly on the manufactured steamboats. How could this be anything of importance during this period, right? But it really goes to show, at least in my view, uh, Ben might disagree here, but the radicalism of Marshall's uh, judicial philosophies in this regard here. He takes something that has no power, next to no power, and gives it something that puts it at a co-equal level with both the executive and to uh, Congress. And when we talk a little bit more about especially his relationships with those branches of government, we'll see how that comes into play a little bit further. But I'd like to really emphasize there, Marshall is the man who, uh, even though he was the fourth chief justice, I'd say he's the man who makes the court really Gives it the energy, the dignity, and the weight, huh? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, the things that John Jay was so uh, angry about it not being yeah. there. I think Jay was probably uh, kicking himself a little bit, wishing that he had come back. 
seeing what Marshall had done to make that court uh, so lively and full of energy there. But that's what I would consider to be uh, the key takeaway uh, of Marshall's court years. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that, I think the place, the thing that uh, Matthew and I probably disagree on the most is, is, is what a judicial philosophy is. You know, when Matthew brings up cases like uh, uh, McCulloch v. Maryland or Gibbons v. Ogden, um, I, I view the ideas set forth by the court as being more so political philosophies than they are judicial philosophies. You know, I, and usually when I talk about those cases, um, I, you know, I, I, I let people know, you know, the questions that the court is asking there are just the classic questions of federalism versus anti-federalism. And we know that John Marshall is very much a federalist. You know, but but that said, to kind of go back to your original question um, of, of whether or not you know I see him as being revolutionary in his judicial philosophies, I, I I don't. And this is admittedly one of those topics where there is definitely scholarly debate, and no matter what I say, people are going to viscerally disagree with me. But that said, I, I you know I don't see his judicial philosophies being very revolutionary. I also don't think it would be fair to say that he was part of a growing trend, however. But the seed had definitely been planted by others. Uh, Marshall is, of course, a product of a generation of attorneys trained by George Wythe out of the University of William and Mary. And although his stint in Wythe's lecture hall was definitely brief, like a few months, many others were, um, Wythe's ideals are definitely visible in Marshall's career, I think. Uh, One of the biggest innovations Wythe was responsible for was instilling the value within his students that although they were only in his classes for a time, they would forever be students of the law. Law was and is an ever-changing, fluid, and adaptable endeavor, um, and the greatest legal minds would always be privy to this, learning as they went. Over the course of Marshall's career, we see the ways in which he is capable of having a changing and ever-dynamic opinion on legal issues. One of the best examples of this um, for me personally is, and and I know we're going to talk about these a little bit more later on, but those are the cases dealing with Marshall's views on native sovereignty. So Cherokee Nation v. Georgia, Worcester v. Georgia. One of the most fascinating things about these cases for me personally is that over the course of a decade, we see Marshall refer to the issues of native sovereignty only within the context of land exchanges between Anglo-Americans to vehemently defending the right to sovereignty of the Cherokee Nation, a group that in his own legal decisions, um, he once lumped into a category he called Indian savages. Personally, I don't see a world where that evolution takes place. I don't see something like where I don't see a world where something like that happens without Withian principles being ever present in the nation's highest court. Um, of course, George Wythe himself can't be solely credited with these things either. He himself was heavily influenced by William Blackstone, um, particularly in his structural approach to teaching law. And to kind of circle all the way back to your initial question, you know, I don't think that there is enough there to call all of this a growing trend. But I do feel that it might be accurate to say Marshall was at an apex of American history where he learned from the right people at the right time and was, as Matthew very succinctly pointed out, he was bold enough to bring those philosophies to the court. Now, I will actually agree with Ben in part. Um, I think Marshall was a better politician than he was a jurist. I will, oh, yeah. I will definitely say that. I think, I think Ben has convinced me in that regard, at least. Yeah. Marshall was definitely a disciple of Hamilton, of Washington, of Adams. I uh, followed a lot along with their political principles, and he carried that with him. And I think he, very correctly so, um, viewed the court as the last means of preserving that ideal. Um, and he would definitely use opportunities like Marbury, McCulloch, and Gibbons, the cases that we, I think, 
uh, reasonably enough called the big three cases for a reason. They're the cases where he really brings those principles, those federalist political principles and mixes them with judicial ideas that he learned from George Wythe and others. And, and, you know, and Adams puts him on the court for that purpose directly. You know, he's trying to maintain some semblance of federalism within this, you know, this incoming, very anti-federalist administration um, in the Jefferson administration. Yep. Just around the same time as uh, there was something that uh, a phrase that might be familiar to modern listeners of the pot, something called court packing. Yeah. Um, This would probably uh, ring some bells there. But John Adams, you know, appoints Marshal Chief Justice less than a month before he's set to leave office. Just at the same time that uh, the Federalist lame duck Senate is on their way out the door and they pass the Judiciary Act of 1801 that says uh, that we're going to double the size of the district courts. We're going to double the size of the circuit courts and add up to upwards of 15 new Federalist judges. Um, I think it's closer to 40. Closer to 40? I think it's closer to 40. Yeah, that's, these, these, are the, so. the, these are the midnight appointments yeah. that are made yeah. by the Adams administration on their way out. Um, and it, you know, it really was just a last ditch effort. You know, in what areas of government has feder- is federalism really not... Um, you know, at the fore. Um, and that was in the, that was in the judicial system. Yeah. Um, and they capitalized on the opportunity to expand it and fill it with all these federalists. Yeah. And a lot of those positions would also be lower decision uh, positions like justices of the peace, which yeah. would go to William and Marbury. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what opens the gate up for that uh, very dramatic case, right. That we see there. Absolutely. And it's interesting. So um, listeners who have already listened to the, the first John Marshall episode, when we discussed his leaving the Secretary of State position and becoming Chief Justice, you know, we understand that that this was, and that's something that I think folks may struggle with a little bit about this period in the early Republic's history, that the judiciary was very political. Even rulings from the bench at that time, it was still, it was politically motivated, but definitely with Marshall's appointment as chief justice, it was solely because Adams couldn't trust that if he tried to appoint somebody who wasn't right there in DC and willing to say, okay, I'll do it and take the office, he may lose it. And Jefferson would be the one appointing the chief justice. And that would have ramifications across the federal judiciary. And so, you know, I think it's very important to tie in that, that political philosophy to all of this. And, and I think y'all also make a a good point. And one of the things that comes up in so much other scholarship around the revolution and the early Republic and some of these founding documents, you know, even the declaration of independence, you've got folks who, well, you know, was that really original for Jefferson or is it more of these political philosophies that he, he was exposed to and that he put into this work. And it ultimately gets to that. These people just like us aren't operating in a vacuum. They have influences, they have experiences, even if it's just, you know, a a few weeks in George Wythe's lecture, you know, it still has this major impact on somebody, but it also, I think there is something to be said about what the individual does with it. And I think that y'all pointed out that Marshall being there, he was the fourth chief justice. The other three hadn't for whatever reason done anything like he ultimately did with the court. And so it was 
there was something about John Marshall being in that position that was important, but he brought so much with him that in political philosophy, as well as, you know, a, a judicial view that really helped him to have this impact. And, and that was, you know, one of the interesting things about the Marshall court is that there were so many, so few dissenting opinions in the court, but one notable exception that we've already mentioned by name um, being Cherokee Nation v. the state of Georgia. So would y'all mind sharing why it was that there are so few dissenting opinions and what influence Marshall had on how opinions were handed down by the court during his tenure as chief justice? Yeah. So, you know, when, when Marshall enters into the Supreme Court, um, you know, John Jay being his only, um, you know, the, the only chief justice before him that actually issued decisions, um, the, the, the court was often issuing individual opinions, like multiple justices would write multiple opinions uh, and they were all more or less kind of, they, they, they held the same amount of weight. But, you know, John Marshall enters into the Supreme Court and he starts, um, you know, what's now largely tradition. And that is the court issuing one definitive opinion um, that is the, the, the de facto um, ruling. Of course, concurring opinions exist and people can dissent in, you know, in full or in part, um, but largely the court is issuing a, a single opinion. Now, as to, to why that is, it, I can only imagine that being the guy on the court who says, actually, we're going to start taking up really controversial cases about, you know, you know, emerging national markets, the role of a federal bank and federal bureaucracy in everyday life. You know, being the first person to really envision that 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 role of the court um, in these cases, um, I can only imagine that that carries so much weight in having people, for the most part, signing on to your opinions. Um, I don't know if you had anything that you wanted to add to that, uh, Matthew. I, I think it's truly remarkable how many uh, unanimous decisions the Marshall Court is able to produce, and that's really through the process of moderation and compromise, and that's a principle that. We hardly ever hear in relation to the Supreme Court nowadays, but when it comes down to the Marshall Court, I think in one year out of 42 opinions that were issued, 41 were unanimous. All but one were unanimous decisions that the court hands down there. And that really speaks to really the talents that John Marshall has. Again, part of those political talents and those ideals that he'll bring with him to the court. Part of, another part of the reason why I think he's a better politician than he is a jurist, because he's able to whittle down to the basic principles of a case and basically ask, uh, do you agree with this or disagree with this? And if not, what are some things we can do so that each of us gets at least part of what we want out of this case while still having the overarching message of the case really come down to these simple questions? And that's why in cases like McCulloch v. Maryland, you know, when you think of the issue of a national bank and the debate surrounding that during this period in time, you imagine Jefferson in a really heated argument with Alexander Hamilton. Well, Jefferson becomes president and he appoints a lot of political uh, uh, partisans, you could argue, people who are Democratic Republicans, objectively so. He appoints them to Marshall's court. And this is all un with the understanding that uh, they're going to serve as a check to John Marshall within the Supreme Court. They all fail to do so. All the people that Jefferson appoints and all the people that Madison and Monroe appoint as well, 
will all eventually take Marshall's sides on these questions as well. And that's because they heard a lot about Marshall. They heard a lot about what kind of person he was. He was a gracious host. He would invite you into his uh, private quarters to give you a drink of Madeira wine, his favorite beverage that he would hand out to all of his judges. Uh, it would basically be like a fraternal order of many sorts. They would sit, they would converse, they would debate. But at the end of the day, they would say, we're going to sit here and we're going to talk this out until we all come out with something that we all can agree on. Yeah, you know, We are not judges, we are the court. Um, yes. John Marshall, um, he also starts uh, you know, a now dead tradition of the justices boarding together in the same house. Um, so the, one, one, because it just made fiscal sense, the judges did not get paid very much. Um, but also, you know, you can only imagine that that helps to, to build that sort of fraternal order. They start referring to each other as, you know, Brother Story, Brother Thompson, um, Brother Washington. You can only imagine that living together in that boarding house for those, you know, few months out of the year, that, you know, they could better come to understand each other in the issues facing the court. Absolutely. And, and I think that's, one thing, and especially at this point in the history of the early republic, this idea of personal connection leading to either you know advancement in politics or in you know in the judiciary space, it, it's so key. And you know we're already seeing that in the the Madison narrative series, the importance of that social sphere to larger DC and national politics and, and movements. And so I, that is so key to that. And it's interesting to see that reflected in, in the court and with Marshall as well. And I think that that, that does speak to his strength as a politician. And so one of the things at this time, and, and we've talked about in the narrative series, but we've also mentioned briefly here, but I'd like to take a moment to go a bit more into. So numerous cases came before the Marshall Court that dealt with relations with Native peoples. Would you mind sharing more about Marshall's impact on the federal government's policy towards Native peoples in North America? Yeah. Um, so the, the the cases involving Native sovereignty, um, those have really been my fascination for like a few years now, so much so that, you know, with the help of my fellow educators, uh, you know, I do a program called the Trilogy Cases that talks specifically and does a deep dive into to, to the legal aspects of those cases and, and, and the ramifications. But as it pertains to, to federal, gov- the federal government's policy towards these different Native groups, Marshall's definitions of Native sovereignty in Johnson v. McIntosh, Cherokee Nation v. Georgia, and Worcester v. Georgia um, those cases really kicked off a, a seemingly never-ending debate over the legal status of different Native groups. What is clear is that it has never been universally recognized, the absolute sovereignty of any Native group, um, even though Marshall does kind of try to. And the questions as to what the legal status of these various groups actually is is still being considered by the same court. Chief Justice Marshall is credited as having established as a legitimate arm of the federal government. The case that uh, you know comes to mind that even I was really blown away by um, that happened relatively recently was uh, on the the modern day Supreme Court was Yellen v. Confederated Tribes of the Chehalis Reservation. Um, and I apologize if I'm not pronouncing that correctly. Um, but this case came before the modern day Supreme Court in 2021. In this case, the court needed to consider whether or not Alaskan Native corporations could be considered Indian tribes, because these aren't, you know, these aren't sovereign nations, they're something else. 
So the court needed to ask, you know, can we consider them Indian tribes as defined by the 1975 Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act? Um, It's important to note that to my understanding, um, that is uh, that Alaskan Native corporations are for-profit entities that in more ways than one represent indigenous people who don't have official ties to federally recognized tribes. Um, And the people portion of that statement is, is really important. As it would happen, the federal government authorized billions of dollars to be given out to Indian tribes as part of its, uh, these, these, you know, quote, Indian tribes, uh, as part of its 2020 COVID relief package, commonly known as the CARES Act. In a six to three decision, the Supreme Court did indeed recognize those Alaskan Native corporations as Indian tribes and freed up millions of dollars of much needed federal aid. Um, Now, the reason that I bring this case up specifically is to highlight the fact that because John Marshall was unwilling to recognize Native groups as distinct sovereign nation states the same way we might view countries like Canada or Mexico, um, he kicked off this truly never-ending debate where we must constantly ask ourselves, well, if we can't classify them as absolutely sovereign, then what is their relationship to the United States? Now, thankfully, it appears as though the general attitude towards these Native groups has improved over time. I can rather confidently say that without cases like Johnson v. McIntosh, where Marshall says that these people do not have the right to sovereignty, or Flesher v. Peck to a lesser degree, that cases like Yellen would still need to be considered by the Supreme Court. Absolutely. And that is something that we've we've come to time and again on the podcast. And especially as we're talking through um, some of the, the secretaries of war and the fact that that diplomacy, diplomacy with Native peoples went through the War Department rather than the State Department, making and, and institutionalizing this idea that they were separate, that, that was a different type of sovereignty. And, and the fact that we are still dealing with these issues to the present day of, of what what are these entities if they are not sovereign nations is it's humbling. I mean, just the fact that, that we're still having these conversations. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's really remarkable too to kind of see the, the historiographical development of how we view these cases. Um, you know, I, I remember reading like books and articles that were published in like the 1960s and 70s. And, you know, they, you know, legal scholars would examine cases like Johnson v. McIntosh, again, where Marshall does not recognize the sovereignty of the Piankishaw people specifically, but he applies it to, to all of these Native groups. You know, there were books and articles that were being written that said that uh, actually this case um, formed a protection for these Native people by not allowing people who were white, uh, you know, encroachers to legally own their land. And, you know, there is a reading of the case where that does make some semblance of sense. But if we look at history, that's not the case whatsoever. In fact, Native or, uh, American encroachment on Native lands increases um, following these decisions. You know, and even like, you know, cases like Cherokee Nation v. Georgia, which, you know, by you know, modern day indigenous scholars specifically, they see that case as a failure by the court to recognize a sovereign nation. And in the same opinion, where he fails to recognize the sovereign nation, he also applauds them for their system of government and their their way of life and how they've adapted to, you know, American ideals. So even though he sees these people as, you know, being very Americanized, he still doesn't recognize their sovereignty. And we should also put the uh, the term American ideals in intense air quotes. Yes. yes. You know, and even in Worcester v. Georgia, where John Marshall, he does 
declare the sovereignty of the Cherokee people? He doesn't really, you know, have the court ask that question. It's more so assumed. But his actual decision really holds no weight by this time. You know, the fervor for westward expansion and the belief that there's gold on these Cherokee lands, the, the, the damage has been done. You know, a lot of people look to the Jackson administration as, you know, having really failed when they publicly say that they're not going to help enforce this decision. They don't believe in it. But, you know, equal blame needs to be placed on Marshall, who really created the problem here to begin with. Absolutely. Um, that said, it is it is interesting. It is really interesting that he does kind of develop a, a changing opinion about the Native people. Um, you know, like I said, he, he essentially references the Cherokee people as being Indian savages in Johnson v. McIntosh. And by Worcester v. Georgia, he's saying, actually, this is a sovereign nation state where the laws of Georgia have no place whatsoever. Um, that is very remarkable to see because he doesn't have that same kind of changing opinion about any other group of people, as far as I know, you know, specifically um, free and enslaved black people. But uh, that, that, that that's one of the most fascinating parts of those cases for me personally. Absolutely. And, and Ben, I think you, you bring up a, a really important point and we're going to be talking about this more in the podcast, you know, especially as we're starting to get to the Battle of Tippecanoe, Tecumseh, the War of 1812, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, we're definitely going to dive into, there are so many points in the, the federal government will say something, you know, they'll ban giving alcohol to native peoples and that's just ignored. But whenever you have cases or you have laws that are inequitable are increasing this inequality and this institutionalizing this inequality and, and separateness, those are the ones, Oh yeah, we we're going to follow that to the letter of the law and, and we're going to take these cases and yes, we're going to, use this for westward expansion, you know, and, and it is, it is something that we have to, you know, as American citizens consider as part of our legacy. And, and to your point, this is a continued legacy. We are still dealing with this inequity today. So it's, it's important to discuss. I, and I really like your, your language there, the institutionalization of this inequality. Um, I, Actually, I really like that phrase so much. I'm probably going to work it into my programs from now on. I, I would be humble and honored for you to <laughs> <laughs> use the phrase. But it, it is. And, and that's one thing that is fascinating about studying this time of history, you know, and, and we see the institutionalization of so much that we are still dealing with to the present day, because this was a time where you had people like Marshall, you had people like Washington and Jefferson that for better or worse, were making up new rules. We're, were were doing things that, that hadn't been done before had been done at a, at a smaller scale, but were taking this differently and, and shaping and reshaping the nation and, and, it, it, the impact that that had. So it is, it is fascinating to, to discuss and to explore, including the, the darker parts of the legacy. I, I, very important to, to examine and, and reflect upon what is still institutionalized in equity to the present day. So, and, you know, you, you had mentioned Ben, and I think this is a good segue to talking about another part of Marshall's legal legacy, 
So we've mentioned Paul Finkelman a couple of times. In his assessment of Marshall's judicial legacy, he noted what he described as his quote-unquote pro-slavery jurisprudence. In your studies of Marshall's tenure and his work on the court, what impact do you see that the chief justice or the court in general at the time had on the institution of slavery in the U.S.? So at least for me, I would say it certainly normalizes uh, the denial of freedom to black individuals that I should note have legitimate legal claims. Many of these individuals who we'll discuss shortly really do um, come through a system that is stacked against them in so many regards. And especially with John Marshall, he will uphold this, um, this system, aligning himself outside established legal doctrines, I should say, that allow for these people to sue for their freedoms in court, justly so. Many cases, um, he returns them to slavery. And I should actually amend that statement by saying all cases that Marshall um, authors the opinion in the decision, he will return that individual to bondage. I mean, that'll either be a person who was granted their freedom by a lower court, or he's upholding the decision of a lower court, keeping them enslaved. And oftentimes these cases are jury cases. So it's a jury. It's an all white jury that grants a black person their freedom. Um, And Marshall, he nullifies that. He overturns it. Yeah. And uh, there is many of these instances here. Um, involving state laws, um, including uh, the state of Maryland, including D.C. laws, which I should note um, is not a really up to the question of federal versus state authority because it's the District of Columbia. It's a federal district. This is a person who's brought in through a neighboring state and they stay for a certain amount of time. And once they've been in D.C. long enough, they can legally sue for their freedom. And that's exactly what happens in this case. Nevertheless, they are granted their uh, freedom, you know, by a lower court. Nevertheless, Marshall turns turns that around and returns them back to slavery, saying actually D.C. law does not matter in this case, which is absurd when you look at it on its face. You would then re- he's then returning it to the state that they originally came from, which of course, when you're thinking about issues such as slavery, this would never apply yeah. to this case. And it, um, to 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 just throw in a little footnote there, um, so uh, I think the case you're referring to is Scott v. Negro Ben, right? Yes. Um, yes. This 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 case is really fascinating. And just to correct one thing that you said, uh, so uh, Maryland law would apply in D.C. in those cases. And in the case of Scott v. Negro Ben, um, he is illegally brought into D.C. As the law reads, he should have uh, Scott, his enslaver, should have declared him essentially, uh, like done administrative paperwork to declare him either with a naval officer or a tax official. He fails to do this. Um, now, Ben himself not being able to represent himself in uh, the courts because of his the color of his skin, he has to find legal representation. He does successfully do that. A jury trial is called and a jury grants him his freedom, finding that Scott violated these laws. The case is appealed to the appeals court. The appeals court agrees with the lower court's decision. And then the case gets appealed again to John Marshall's Supreme Court. Um, and it's there that a person who's so heavily invested in the institution of slavery um, and has so much influence, as we talked about, over the court, he, he uses that to overturn this individual's freedom. Um, he says that Maryland law was ambiguous and that administratively speaking, it's really not feasible to, to, to you know require this of people bringing um, enslaved individuals into D.C., which is, it, it's, it's just a little bit absurd. Um, you know, Maryland law was, it's pretty clear. There's no reading of the law where Ben shouldn't be granted his freedom, but Marshall um, identifying with the enslaver over the enslaved, he returns Ben to bondage as far as we know. 
I think in that case, theoretically, it should have been sent back down to the lower courts and another trial be held. You know, one thing that uh, we would hope to do one day is to go to like the state of Maryland's um, uh, lower court archives and see if this case is ever retried again, Um, because theoretically it should have been. But that's that's a that's a project for the future. And admittedly, Paul Finkelman's the guy that gave me the idea to go do that. He said that it would make a really great PhD thesis one day. <laughs> it, it's always good to have future res- research plans. So <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. We have no shortage of those. Absolutely, absolutely. And thank you for that. And 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 that's the thing that's so important in studying Marshall and his his legacy and his relations with slavery and enslavement you know it it even permeates into his work in the supreme court and and to see these instances where you know because the the proper process or the proper law was inconvenient to the enslaver that it was just ignored even by somebody who is this pinnacle and and seen as um being so invested in the establishment of federal law and, and the, the federal legal system. So are there any cases that came before the Marshall court that you feel that folks should know more about or that had what you see as having a larger impact than what is generally understood? I'll let the legal legacies guy handle this one. (laughs) Uh, There are a few cases that I admit I have a lot of fun reading about and really these cases are small footnotes in Marshall's judicial legacy, admittedly so, but they really do play a bigger picture here into what we see Marshall's philosophy as being. And one of those, I think, actually comes through another slavery case, and that's the Antelope Trial um, in 1825, where we see um, four members of the Supreme Court out of seven at this time, so a bare majority of the court, are enslavers. And Marshall is included in this majority here. And they return part of 212 captive Africans into slavery in Spain and Portugal. And I should know this is in direct violation of of, uh, the United States' own laws dealing with the international slave trade. So kind of to go into more background on this case, it's considered really to be Marshall's most famous slavery case. It's probably the one that's the most well-known among those who study the topic. But the antelope uh, is really regarded the attempted smuggling of captive Africans into the United States decades after the passage of the transatlantic slave trade ban in 1808. You know, something that just came up in your narrative, uh, Jerry. Uh, But in 1819, Portuguese and Spanish privateers commandeered the American ship, the antelope, filled it with approximately 300 captive Africans and sailed to the coast of Spanish Florida, intending to sell the individuals. But American federal authorities seized the antelope as it was in American waters, and they discovered the illegal cargo, escorted the vessel to Savannah, Georgia, where the U.S. took custody of the Africans. This violates American federal law, what the slave traders had done here. So the slave traders from the antelope and the now 212 captive Africans, and I should note, some had succumbed to disease, others were stolen once they reached land in Savannah, so they were taken into slavery to places that remain to this day completely unknown. And this endured through six years of legal proceedings before it finally actually reached the Marshall Court in 1825. So we don't know what could have happened to many of these individuals originally. It's close to 300, but by the time it actually comes to the Marshall Court, it's closer to 200. And the Chief Justice heard from Spanish and Portuguese claimants about legal ownership of the captives. 
So the question before Marshall really then became, are these captives enslaved or free? And if it's the former, they belong to their captors. If the latter, Marshall felt that the Africans should be returned to Africa as part of that colonization idea that he is so um, uh, friendly toward. But ultimately, Marshall will honor the ownership claims of some of the captives as being legally enslaved to the Spanish. And he returned those individuals to their enslavers. And uh, I should quote Paul Finkelman once again when I say, uh, Finkelman writes, uh, quote, Marshall ruled that the remaining Africans were to be handed over to the U.S. government as fruit of the illegal trade. And Finkelman concludes, quote, Marshall admitted that the African trade was contrary to the law of nature, but asserted that it was consistent with the law of nations and cannot itself be piracy. So in order for Marshall to reach this verdict, there's a few things that he has to do. He has to ignore federal law, which banned the transatlantic slave trade and participation in it as piracy, as it's granted in this law from 1808. And Marshall then felt compelled to respect other countries' participation in the slave trade, namely Spain and Portugal, even if it was illegal in the United States. So he is putting other countries' laws, even though this is something that's happening on American soil, He's putting these other countries' priorities on top of American federal law during this period here. So in The Antelope, Marshall, once again, because this is by this is closer to the end of his time on the court, this is less than 10 years before his death, we really see that growing trend now that has been there in so many of these cases, like Scott v. Negro Ben, uh, Mima Queen, uh, cases such as those, like LaGrange versus Chuteau came later. But we really see Marshall, once again, prioritizing the right to property, over the right to liberty. So he essentially condones this illegal act of attempting to smuggle captured Africans into the United States by focusing his arguments on property claims. Uh, Throughout the years of proceedings, the 200-some captured Africans lived and labored in Georgia and continued to do so until the United States returned them to Africa. So that really shows there is a financial gain to prolonging this legal process, especially in local and state courts. And, and, and you know, it also shouldn't, it should also be noted that the, this is essentially a direct expansion of the institution of slavery that it goes against the laws that are on the books. Um, you know, we, we see Marshall as this, or, you know, Marshall is often remembered as this, this great legal mind, this legal theorist, this jurist, but here we see him um, pretty clearly being willing to, to defy the legal principles that are before him on the court um, in favor of, of expanding the institution of slavery. Now, he's, it's expanding you know, a relatively small amount, but it is an expansion nonetheless. Um, and this is a, you know, probably a massive overreach by the court. Yeah. yeah. And it's an important precedent that Roger Taney, as Chief Justice, will definitely build upon yes. um, in Dred Scott versus Sanford. So. Yeah. When many people tend to look at, and I've noticed this trend in biographies, people tend to look at Roger Taney and John Marshall as being polar opposites from each other, one being very pro-national government, one being very states' rights oriented. On this issue of slavery, they're very similar. Yeah. Um, one could almost say that um, Marshall's more radical. Marshall would be more radical um, in terms of the expansion of slavery in this case. Because by the time you get to the 1850s with Dred Scott's deci- uh, with the Dred Scott decision, um, Tani is really following a trend that's already been accepted as the perceived view by a majority of those in the South. Yeah. Um, so he's really only just taking their ideology and putting it in a court decision there. Yeah. Marshall is doing something of his own thinking in this Antelope case. And that's really the key difference there that really uh, 
lays the judge um, at the center of the blame um, in this aspect here. Yeah. But to kind of go in some other cases, Jerry, that uh, I, I love to talk about here. And before you do that, um, I actually wanted to to mention, and I was actually, as as you were talking about this, Matthew, it made me think of a case that actually came before the the Tawny Court, which is the Amistad case, which is a more, yes. you know, probably more well known than the Antelope case. But now I'm just thinking, I'm like, how how did that go into the Amistad decision? How you know what? How was that precedent considered in what? You know, there there are some some nuances and some differences, but you know there are definitely some some correlations here as well. And it is fascinating to think about you know the fact that in the Amistad case, you know even though there's there's so much to dissect and we won't go down that tangent, but it was a a different ruling. And I think that that does kind of point to that Marshall in some ways is more radical than, than Tani and his court. Absolutely. Yeah. Marshall is definitely a precedent setter in more ways than one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately. Yeah. But we have an entire program really in the fall that focuses on the next case that I like to talk about. And this comes up on the anniversary of this uh, trial's verdict and the ramifications that it has. And of course it happened right here in Richmond. And that's the Aaron Burr treason trials of 1807. Now, I know you already covered this very much in depth in your narrative series. So that, that relieves me of some of the responsibility of going over the details of this case here. But really, it comes down to actually two cases um, that kind of fall under the same event. And the first one of these is um, the case of Ex parte Bowman and Swartwoot, I believe is the pronunciation That's there. my best guess. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's my best guess as well. Um, but that comes earlier in 1807, which that held that the constitutional definition of treason excluded mere conspiracy to levy war against the United States. So Eric Bowman and Samuel Swartwood were civilians that became implicated in the whole Burr-Wilkinson plot. Um, I could ramble all day about James Wilkinson. What a character. And I, I think you did that justice in your narrative series. Oh, yeah. Chaos, and, and we're not done yet. There's still more yeah. Wilkinson to come, listeners. Oh, uh, <laughs> don't, don't we know it all too well. But that plot, um, you know, supposedly consisting of Burr and Wilkinson, attempting to create an empire, that comes down to the Supreme Court being asked in this case, uh, in, in regards to Bowman and Swartwood, they were accused of attempting to recruit others into the plot. Um, but these individuals were informed the military, which promptly arrested them. So they gave themselves up in this aspect here. So the Supreme Court then decides that, uh, and this is quoting the decision, to constitute a levying of war, there must be an assemblage of persons for the purpose of effecting by force a treasonable purpose. Um, enlistments of men to serve against government is not sufficient. That's going to play a big role um, as a significant precedent for uh, um, what defines treason. Um, and that's going to really tie into the final verdict on Burr's uh, culpability. When Marshall then asks the jury to acquit Burr, it's based on two presumptions. It's going to be the first being that there has to be an actual act of force, an actual overt act, as it's defined in the treason clause of the Constitution. And secondly, there has to be uh, effective testimony from two witnesses to that same overt act. And as we see from our friend James Wilkinson, that testimony is not as uh, clear cut as it could be. Um, We find out then, of course, as you've already mentioned, that that letter was forged by Wilkinson that claimed to have been written by Burr going over all the details of his plot. So that pretty much ruined Jefferson's uh, prosecution uh, for this case. And that's what makes it so easy for Marshall to ask for Burr's uh, acquittal in this case. 
but it is no less political, of course, because it's very partisan conflict during this period. And it even leads to Marshall being burned in effigy in places like Baltimore, Maryland, and even in Virginia, where so many are opposed to Marshall by this time. And um, I, I, I have to throw in there that uh, Matthew and I, um, if anybody's ever in Richmond, Virginia, or in September, um, in September, we do an entire tour in conjunction with the Valentine Museum, where John Wickham, one of Aaron Burr's defense attorneys, historic house is. We do a we do a tour in conjunction with them all about the treason trial. Um, we, we we dive into some of the details and some of the the everlasting impacts of that case. You know, uh, you know, this is one of the first cases where it truly needs to be considered. You know, what is an impartial juror and what defines treason? So yeah, that's a, a fun program that is kind of Matthews and I's baby um, that we do in September every year. Wow, I I will have to remember that. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I think it's fair to say Marshall made the right call by saying that an impartial juror is definitely someone who is not promised a blank pardon by the President of the United States. Yes. Just that little thing. It's just a little thing, right? That's uh, our little subtle poke at Jefferson for this episode here. Yeah, during the program, we do much more Jefferson bashing. If there's any out there, like, just be prepared for that. You're, you're in good company on this podcast. So. <laughs> And uh, speaking of Jefferson, again, it uh, sets a significant precedent for subpoenaing the president for records and information that is relevant to an important case. Marshall agrees that the president can be subpoenaed for documents that Burr himself claims during the trial will prove his innocence. If the president has access to this information that will make or break a case, and in this case, it's literally a question of life or death, right? Uh, Burr will be hanged if he's found guilty of treason. So under Marshall's ruling, of course, the president is subservient to the law, just like any other American citizen. This serves as a really important precedent for the relations between the president and the judiciary, something that Marshall and Jefferson, uh, they're bickering back and forth to each other, is really going to help build precedent for that. But this is going to come into play in more recent years, especially with the Watergate scandals and the holding of the Nixon tapes. You know, the Supreme Court, in a unanimous ruling, says Nixon has to hand over this relevant information, these tapes. And that's what happens in this case. And then more recently, uh, President Donald Trump's uh, subpoena from the state of New York for financial documents. Whatever people's feelings might be on that, I won't dive too deeply into. But um, the precedent for a state court or the Supreme Court subpoenaing a president for materials comes all the way back from this trial in 1807. A subpoena decum, the, that's the full Latin word, or the Latin phrase. Well, and, and it's just so fascinating. That, that's one of the reasons why I, I you know, did a bit of a deep dive on the, the Burr trial, because not only is there so much precedent in that case, but then also the fact that at the time, you know, this is you know, nearly 200 years before you get court TV and, and televised courts, but the nation was watching as as best they could. You had people flooding into Richmond to actually witness the trial. The letters coming out, you know, folks were reporting on well, what happened on the trial on the state, and the fact that it it generated so much interest is just it's it's a fascinating point to to explore. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the, that you know case in and of itself. Even though I, I don't think it's talked about all that often, you know, it has its own legacy. Yeah. Um, and you know the impacts of it are you know anybody who goes into a into a courtroom as on jury duty and gets dismissed, 
that you can tie that directly into this case. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you also, it, it makes it a lot harder to acute, to rightfully convict somebody of treason. And that's for the betterment of American society, I would argue, because a lot of the problem was that Burr was, you know, saying mean things about Thomas Jefferson and he was saying mean things about the state of the country. And, uh, could somebody be charged with treason for just speaking ill will against the sitting members of government? And it's ironic that this is coming from Thomas Jefferson, right? (laughs) Because we just saw less than a decade before this, all the furor over the alien and sedition acts, which I should mention Marshall was not an advocate for that. He Um, denounces those when he runs for Congress. Yeah. Yeah, Which of course will help him here in Virginia uh, where animosity is pretty strong against those. But we saw the, uh, the persecution of, Democratic Republicans who spoke out against the federal government and the Adams administration. And now Jefferson is turning this around and he's willing to charge a man with treason for doing essentially the same thing and plotting against, uh, supposedly plotting against the government to form some nation state there. And it should also be mentioned that there was kind of a widely held assumption during this time that the United States would quickly break into two or more countries. Jefferson himself believed this. Aaron Burr believed this. So could it really then be listed as treason for creating a separate nation state? If it was something that many people within the American political system expected to happen. But again, Marshall will really take this forward by making it difficult to charge someone with treason. And everybody on both sides of the political aisle today, um, as fiercely polarized as people can be and how much people like to argue about politics, they should all be very happy that they will not get charged with treason for doing so uh, at any at any given time. Absolutely, and and that's the thing. And as listeners of the podcast know, you know, there's so many times that Jefferson and his pre-presidency and the ideals that he had when he became president, you know, he goes does a complete 180, and this is an important one especially for somebody who who made the point of, you know, well, we need to be cautious about what we do, about the laws, about the precedents that we set, because they could have ramifications that we may not see right now. And this one, to your point, Matthew, would have had huge ramifications and could have been a power abused so much and, and sent American history in widely varying directions. Absolutely. And I I couldn't agree more with that assessment. And uh, we really have John Marshall to thank in this particular regard with his ability of having a strict construction of the treason clause uh, for the reasons already mentioned. Um, And it really does uh, play even in today's highly polarized climate. I I always like to say, you know, one of the few things that is incredibly clearly defined in the Constitution is what treason is. Um, And, you know, that's evident in this case. Yeah, absolutely. But I do actually have one more uh, case that I do like to talk about, if that's okay. Absolutely. So this case is um, Dartmouth College v. Woodward in 1819. Now, this is personally my favorite obscure Marshall case because it is something that has to do with a state fighting with a college about whether or not uh, the charter can be changed in this regard here. And this actually comes down to deeply held philosophical principles that are held by Federalists, and held by Jeffersonians. So to kind of give, again, another background into this, way back in 1769, you saw King George III grant a charter for Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. This document spelled out the purposes of the school, it set up the structure to govern it, 
and it gave land to the college. But in 1816, um, now you have the United States, New Hampshire is no longer a British colony. Over 30 years after the end of the revolution, I should say, um, the legislature in New Hampshire alters Dartmouth's charter in order to reinstate the college's deposed president, place the ability to appoint positions in the hands of the governor, and it adds new members to the board of trustees, and it creates a state board of visitors with veto power over trustee decisions. So this effectively converts the school from a private institution to a public one. And the college's book of records, uh, corporate seal, other corporate property, were all removed. And so the trustees of the college naturally objected to this. They saw this as an attack on their sovereignty as a corporation and sought to have the actions of the legislature declared unconstitutional in court. So the trustees, you know, they retained Dartmouth alumnus Daniel Webster, who would later become a a U.S. senator and secretary of state in, in his own right. But he argued for the college in this case against William Woodward, who's the state approved secretary of the new board of trustees. But uh, Webster's speech really came down through the annals of history for his strong endorsement of this college. He describes it as, quote, a small college, but yet there are those who love it. And it's really deep personal connection to this here. And it is so moving, according to contemporary accounts of the time, that it helps convince Chief Justice Marshall in his overall decision here. And the decision's handed down in eighteen in February 1819, and it rules in favor of the college, um, and it invalidates the act of the New Hampshire legislature. This is an important precedent for two reasons. This is the Supreme Court asserting its ability to strike down a state law, and I should mention that this was only the second time it had done this. The first one was in Fletcher versus Peck, um, where it struck down Georgia's um, law claiming the Yazoo land grant deals, um, striking down that as unconstitutional. But this reaffirms Marshall's belief in the sanctity of a contract, um, which was also upheld in Fletcher v. Peck, and is necessary to the functioning of a republic. And the court rules that the college's corporate charter qualified as a contract between private parties. The king and his trustees, the legislature could not interfere in this. And even though the United States is no longer a royal colonies, um, the contract was still valid because the Constitution says that a state could not pass laws to impair a contract. So Marshall is asserting the federal supremacy there of the contract clause to be able to use that. And I should mention he uses this also to assert the institution of slavery in many regards. But here in this case, he's using it for a good uh, purpose here. He's asserting the right of this college to be held in uh, regards here um, as its own private entity. And it really protects corporate interests in the long term here. And this decision, like I said, was not without precedent. Um, This has already been... Uh, the court had already invalidated a state act in Fletcher v. Peck. But, um, and this basically says, you know, that contracts, no matter how they were procured or when they were procured, cannot be invalidated by state legislation. And here's where that interfe- intervenes, interferes with philosophically held principles that are held by the likes of, his name comes up once more, Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson Uh, was not a fan of the Fletcher case, nor of the Dartmouth College case. He had basically made a commiseration with New Hampshire's governor, William Plummer, that stated essentially that the earth belongs in usufruct to the living. That was one of uh, Jefferson's core principles that he held throughout his life, dating back from his time in France when he fell in love with French revolutionary principles. He would take that into his time in the United States, saying, you know, the dead cannot bind the living to contracts that 
the people of today do not agree with, right? And many of the people you could probably say did not agree with this contract that Dartmouth College was doing here. So Jefferson believed that the will of the people, the will of the elected officials, not the courts that were so far removed from the will of everyday people that they should uh, be the ones that are making these decisions about contracts and their suitability. So popular opinion influenced some state and state courts and legislators to declare that the state governments had an absolute right to amend or repeal a corporate charter. But the courts, however, imposed limitations to this, um, which, of course, did not make Thomas Jefferson a very happy camper in that regard there. So we see after the Dartmouth decision, actually, some states really lash out uh, back at the Supreme Court at this. They, many states wanted more control, so they passed laws or state constitutional amendments that gave themselves the general right to alter or revoke at will, which the courts found to be a valid reservation. And uh, the courts had established, however, that the alteration or revocation of private charters or laws authorizing private charters must be reasonable and cannot cause harm to the members. And this is going to be really important in protecting, you know, company founders, stockholders, and the like. So we see those financial ideals that come in McCulloch v. Maryland. We see the trumping of state law and monopoly that comes down in Gibbons v. Ogden. And we see that principle of judicial review that we see in Marbury. All three of these principles come together, making this, I I almost want to say, because I'm such a legal nerd, uh, a a beautifully succinct case here um, that really showcases all of Marshall's judicial philosophies rolled up in one package. Absolutely. And thank you for sharing that, because I think that really gets to... And, you know, we've we've come on this in the podcast in numerous ways, but I think it really helps to highlight the key differences between, you know, Marshall's viewpoints versus Jefferson's, you know, that here Jefferson, you know, the, the he still saw kind of the states as being supreme and Marshall really didn't. He saw that the, the federal government was you know, had this authority over the states and the importance of these contracts and these, these, these binding contracts versus Jefferson, who felt that we should rip up the constitution every 20 years, because why not? That's not going to create chaos, (laughs) but but it, it really does speak to, and, and especially the fact that we're still having some of these same discussions nowadays, you know, we're still having discussions about where federal authority ends, state authority begins, what we can do and, and, you know, government authority versus private authority, business authority. So it's, it is a fascinating case. And, you mentioned a name that we are going to be talking about quite a bit on the podcast moving forward, Daniel Webster. And, and so it's interesting to, to see him in the mix as well. Yeah, he actually plays a big role in all of these uh, key Marshall decisions. He's in Gibbons v. Ogden. He's in McCulloch v. Maryland. Um, he takes a lot of uh, practice in, also in the Aaron Burr trials as well. Mm-hmm. He plays such a dynamic role in so many of these cases. I get mentioned again and again and again when talking about John Marshall that he really is um, one of the key lawyers and, and public speakers of his time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you, you mentioned one that we're actually going to be talking about not too long in the future in the, the Madison presidency narrative, Fletcher v. Peck. So a little preview for the listeners that this is coming, the, the first overturning of a state law. So stay tuned for that. And so 
naturally, as we've seen, there is so much to say about Marshall's legacy and impact when it comes to the American judicial system. But of course, as this is a podcast focused on the presidencies of the United States, I just, I had to ask, I'd like to hear your thoughts on what we can say about Marshall's impact on U.S. presidential history. Well, I could say it definitely played a big role in forming the relationship between the presidency and the judiciary. President John Adams uh, is known to have once said that Marshall was the most important founding father never to have become president himself. And I don't think that's with that much exaggeration. It certainly was um, certainly uh, a, a lot of importance that came with Marshall's role in founding the judiciary as its principal. But in order to effectively do that, he had to effectively form a relationship with the other branches of government that could help build up that branch. And he does that with Congress. And for the purposes of this conversation with the executive, um, he worked um, his work frequently overlapped with that of the executive. We often hear about uh, his judicial decisions on the Supreme Court and the world in which he lived that shaped those decisions. Um, but we really seldom hear about his relationship with the American presidency and the, the men who occupied that office. And in addition to uh, he had childhood and Revolutionary War friendships uh, with future presidents James Monroe and James Madison. In fact, him and Monroe were actually classmates together uh, growing up. And uh, during his 50 plus years in uh, public service, Marshall worked in some capacity with many other American presidents. Of course, George Washington famously sends him a letter uh, asking him to become attorney general. And he turns him down uh, because he would rather uh, continue his private law practice in Richmond, Virginia. I do wonder if this is one of the first times that an American president is like denied, you know, what they what they what they're seeking. <laughs> and especially George Washington. Yeah, a man, a man that Marshall revered so much, he wrote a five-volume biography about the guy. Yeah, um, but but Marshall could not be bothered to become Attorney General. Uh, no. He could not do that in that instance there. No, sir, he was and, busy in Richmond. And, and as your Seat at the Table series really so eloquently shows, there's, so, there's such a revolving door of people coming in and out and in and out, and you end up kind of getting left with the bottom of the barrel in some cases there of yeah. people who are kind of more opportunistic and looking for these experiences there that will just kind of help them get a, a next step to the highest thing. And that's kind of why their uh, careers become so mediocre and so ill, ill remembered. But Marshall, I should also mention, you know, for being the longest serving chief justice in American history for 34 years, he would have the most uh, presidential inaugurations out of any uh, chief justice. He would swear in five presidents on nine different occasions in the course of his 34 years. We see Thomas Jefferson in 1801 and 1805, uh, James Madison in 1809 and 1813, James Monroe, um, his buddy, his pal, which I'm sure he was very glad to have instead of Thomas Jefferson. Uh, in 1817 and 1821, he swears him in. John Quincy Adams, another friend, and of course the son of the man who appoints him to the court in 1825, and Andrew Jackson in 1829 and 1833. Now, I would actually go as far to say that as much as Jefferson and Marshall disagreed with each other and fought along partisan lines, that would really be relegated to the private spaces of their lives. They would write mean things to each other in their private correspondences about each other, but none of them actually saw what each other was writing. They not, didn't see what they were doing there. When it came to Andrew Jackson, <laughs> things would go a little bit differently. As with everything with Andrew Jackson. <laughs> As with everything with Andrew Jackson. Absolutely. He ruffled a few feathers. Just a few. He ruffled a few feathers. He shot a few guys in the duels. Yeah. You know, what's, what's not to 
what's not to complain about there? Um, but Marshall would actually actively campaign against Jackson's uh, president presidency. Uh, in 1828, during that election, he calls for the re-election of John Quincy Adams, which is something that's pretty much unheard of today, a sitting chief justice taking sides in a presidential election. But this was how much danger, how much of a threat Jackson was seen as by John Marshall. He viewed him essentially as a demagogue, as an official who was just advancing the seeds that Jefferson had laid down and continuing a policy that would lead to the complete dissolution of the Union and uh, basically returning us back to the state of affairs during the Articles of Confederation. And what we see with Jackson here is ironic there is because he actually ends up being almost more of a nationalist than John Marshall is. Um, He turns things around, especially during the nullification crisis and threatens to send an army into the South. And this is something that Marshall actually agrees with um, uh, Jackson on quite a good bit. And I should also mention that part about Jackson being viewed as a demagogue. Um, Thomas Jefferson also viewed him as being a demagogue. But I think he failed to see the connection between the seeds that he had planted through his big uh, talk of the will of the people and the will of the people should prevail, how that could grow into kind of the behemoth that he saw it as by the time of the Jacksonian democracy there. And if I might interject just a little note on kind of precedent setting as far as, you know, Marshall's relationship to the presidency, you know, he wanted to retire. Um, in his, you know, by, uh, by the election of 1832, he's, uh, 77, 76, 77 years old. Yeah. He very much, his health was definitely declining. Um, he very much wanted to retire. And that's, you know, one of the reasons he campaigns against Jackson is so that, you know, somebody who isn't Jackson can win the presidency and he can go ahead and take a step back. Um, and Marshall really sets a precedent of, you know, judges, um, you know, maintaining their posts, you know, for, periods longer than they really wanted to in an effort to maintain their political ideologies on the court. You know, today there are a lot of conversations being had about, you know, if and when justices should retire. We just had a justice uh, retire who, you know, a year ago said, absolutely not, I will not retire. But ultimately he stepped down so that somebody younger that carries similar ideologies to him can be put in his place. And those ideologies maintained within the court for a longer period of time. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, when it comes down to people like James Madison and James Monroe, these this was kind of like the calming period in the middle of Marshall's tenure. He actually had pretty good relations with Madison and Monroe, and they, w- they would both appoint people to the court that actually ended up thinking more in lines with Marshall. Um, Joseph Story, who was appointed in 1812 by President Madison, he um, becomes one of Marshall's closest friends and colleagues throughout his entire life that he has. He ser- basically serves as a partner, a protege of his, so much so, really, that um, near the end of Marshall's life, as his health is failing, but he refuses to quit because he needs somebody needs to stand up to Jackson, as Ben mentioned. Mm-hmm. Story kind of becomes the person tasked with writing the opinions, but they're all pretty much given verbatim by Marshall in this aspect here. So Marshall is tasking another justice with carrying on his legacy there. But that camaraderie that we also see with the court starts falling apart during the Jacksonian era as well, because Jackson, I always like to compare Jefferson and Jackson in this way. Jefferson was a thinker and Jackson was a doer. So the the things that Jackson would think about, his passions, his will to do something, he would immediately act on it. Jefferson would sit back and kind of think more theoretically about things. And write a dozen letters to anybody who would listen. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, complain, complain to James Madison about um, the fact that the Constitution needs to be overturned when Madison's sitting there going, 
you know I'm the guy who wrote this stuff, right? <laughs> it was essentially, you know, just throw all of his life working the, in, down the drain, uh, right, if he did this. But when it came down to Jackson uh, later on, he appoints a lot more partisan people to the court, uh, people that are not afraid to stand up to John Marshall like the way that Jefferson thought his people would do. But essentially then what he actually end up happening is Marshall starts finding himself in the minority in some decisions there. He finds himself in the dissent, uh, like we mentioned earlier, with um, uh, Cherokee Nation versus the state of Georgia. And Jackson would be constantly fighting the rulings of the Marshall Court. And when when Wooster v. Georgia came down in 1832, uh, which was basically Marshall, you know, rebuking the state of Georgia for its seizing of the lands of Cherokee lands, Jackson refuses to even enforce this decision. It was the great fear that Marshall always had would happen to the court, that a president who he disagreed with ideologically or um, any branch of the government for that matter, or yeah, it could be Congress as well, or the states, they would just simply refuse to even acknowledge the Supreme Court decision. And this is a dangerous precedent that we see uh, happen after Brown versus Board of Education in 1954 with the policy of massive resistance uh, that's taken up by states like our home states of Virginia and North Carolina rather closing schools than abiding by the Supreme Court decision. This is a policy that's, uh, that has historical precedent in Andrew Jackson. Um, of course, there's the famous line that Jackson probably never actually said, which is that John Marshall has made his decision, now let him enforce it, which is essentially, you know, just throwing this decision in the trash and refusing to uh, acknowledge it in this case. And this actually leaves Marshall uh, near the end of his life to view his career as a failure. He does not think that his mission to champion these Federalist principles that have been carried down to him by George Washington, by his years in the Revolutionary War, his time at Valley Forge. He thinks he's failed in his mission to actually carry this forward. And now it's being uh, completely eliminated by the Jacksonians and their radical democracy policies. This would have been his views during this period here. So we kind of think this would have uh, encouraged him to... uh, destroy a lot of his personal correspondence that we see as well. Yeah, he probably wouldn't be too excited that we're interpreting his house as a historic site. Wow. And, and that's, and it's so interesting to see figures, you know, looking back on, on their life and their legacy. And then from our standpoint to see something completely different, it's, and, and, and it does speak to, you know, he, he did have this long legacy and long impact and we're going to be talking about him for quite a while in terms of his connections to us presidential history. But I, I greatly appreciate the, the insight and perspective that y'all have provided in kind of focusing in on Marshall and understanding him and his career a bit more from his perspective, because I think that's really going to inform as we go along in the narrative and study it from, the president's point of view or, or the administration's point of view, you know, what else, what was happening on the other side, you know, what was happening in, in the Supreme court and, and from Marshall's point of view. And so any last thoughts that you'd like to share with the audience on Marshall's life, his career, his legacy beyond what we talked about today that, that you think would be helpful for the audience to understand as we're moving forward. And as we're examining you know, going back to that presidential lens, but to know about Marshall. Yeah, you know, I I, I often get a, this question from like guests that we interact with um, through our programming and our tours. I often get a, like people asking me questions, you know, like how should I feel about John Marshall? Or they ask the same questions about, you know, people like 
you know, Jefferson or Jackson, who have historically been, you know, kind of held in the limelight as the, these pinnacles of early, of, you know, early American ideals. And, you know, you get the same thing with Marshall. You know, some, somebody, if I give somebody a, a tour of the house and, you know, I, I talk about Marshall's views on federalism and how he implements his agenda on the court, but at the same time, talk about how he completely fails to recognize the sovereignty of, uh, you know, free people and native nations or um, denies the freedom of black individuals that have, le- that have legitimate legal rights to them. You know, they're, they, they, they ask this question, you know, how should I feel about Marshall? And, you know, usually the answer is not a satisfying one. It's like, I don't know. You do with this information what you will. There's very little that I've said here today that I have inferred from studying John Marshall. I'm, I'm largely just quoting him. So, you know, Marshall's and many and you know, pretty much every president's legacy is a very complicated thing. And different people are going to interpret that legacy in different ways. And that, that's exactly how it should be. But the important thing to take away is that by engaging with this history, whether that be through listening to a podcast, visiting a museum, taking a tour at a historic site, um, or you know, reading a book, to, to engage with this history, to me, that really is the act of preserving that history. If not you know, financially or, or you know, writing it down just by preserving it within your own minds. And that's you know, one of the reasons that we really appreciate being able to come on to this podcast is to you know, talk about that legacy um, and to allow people to engage with this history that may not have been able to engage with it before. Absolutely. Matthew, any profound thoughts to add to that? I, I don't think I could have said it better myself. I mean, this is an opportunity that any uh, any humble tour guides like ourselves would kill for. <laughs> and this is something that has really given us um, a great opportunity to tell more people why they should remember someone like John Marshall. Even though he was Secretary of State for only about nine months, his 34-year career as Chief Justice really was one that was transformational for the court as we remember it today. And his relationships with men like Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, John Adams, James Madison, and many other names that I could spend all day recounting were really transformational in the formation of our early republic and tie in so well with the history of the American presidency as a whole. And I think that's something that your listeners can certainly relate to as avid followers of this podcast. And I think even the uh, layman's historian could really relate with this as well. I mean, as for me, my interest in American history originally came from an interest in American presidents, remembering their names, where they came from, what party they were, how long they were in office. These were all things that uh, drew me into the larger scope of American history and led me to the path I am on today. So this is another step in a remarkable journey of being a historian. And so, again, I couldn't thank you enough for this opportunity, Jerry. Thank you. Absolutely. No worries. And, and, and likewise, I, I can't thank y'all enough for, for the insight and perspective and, and the passion for your work that you've exhibited. And talking about that, that journey ahead, as we wrap up, I want to give you an opportunity to share anything that's coming up at the John Marshall House or any research that you're working on right now, kind of what the path ahead looks like for y'all. Yeah. So, uh, uh, one really big thing, um, if any listeners out there are in the education space, teachers, administrators, um, whatever, um, we just recently went live on streamable learning. It's a, it's a, it's an online platform that brings, you know, educators like us from old historic houses, um, into the classrooms of students all over the country. Um, so, you know, anybody out there that's in the education space that's interested in that, we are available on that platform. We offer, you know, K through 12 programs, everything from, legal history to revolutionary war history to uh, the history of enslavement. 
And, you know, we do have a couple of events that are uh, coming up just kind of locally to us. You know, like I said, if anybody's ever traveling through Richmond, you know, please stop by. We're open Wednesdays through Sundays. Um, in early September, like I said, we uh, Matthew and I will be conducting our Aaron Burr Treason Trial Tours with the Valentine Museum in October. And also um, at different times throughout the months, we'll also be hosting our, our, our Haunted History Tours. Um, that's that's um, Those are tours of the house that we do at night where we kind of explore some of the the darker parts of, of the history of the home that we don't often get to talk about. And every month we offer free uh, virtual um, programs on a variety of topics. Um, we have To Be Purchased and Possessed, uh, My Trilogy Cases, Matthew's Legal Legacies um, program. Those are completely free. Um, donations are appreciated, though. And of course, uh, just check out our website, preservationvirginia.org. We always have upcoming events, um, talks, lectures, whatever, um, at any of the various historic sites across Virginia. And, you know, the last thing that I'll add, um, we are a nonprofit. Donations are always appreciated. Um, every dollar that we get, um, it goes directly back into the house, goes directly back into research, interpretations, and programming. So anybody who's uh, willing and able, please do check out our uh, website. Absolutely. Yeah. Anything to add? Um, no, I think that's pretty much it. Um, we got everything covered. That's, that's pretty much our schedule for the rest of the year. So anybody who is looking to come by, uh, like, like Ben said, we're open Wednesday through Sunday. Our hours during weekdays are 11 to two. And then on Saturdays is from 10 to five and Sundays is from 12 to five. And we can, you know, if you have a big group or whatever, just shoot us an email. Um, we're always willing to work and schedule big groups and things like that. And of course, if anybody, uh, for whatever reason, needs to get in contact with Matthew or myself or anybody that works at the John Marshall House, just shoot us an email at johnmarshallhouse at preservationvirginia.org. But with that, uh, Matthew, what do you think? Should I leave them with the, the little quote from Joseph's story? I think you should. Um, yeah. I'm going to leave you guys with a little quote that, uh, that, that uh, you know, Matthew and I think really sums up um, the life of John Marshall. It's a quote given to us from a man named Joseph Story. We talked about a little bit, one of John Marshall's closest friends and colleagues on the Supreme Court, um, also a frequent drinker with the man. Their favorite beverage was Madeira wine. Well, he once said in reference to Marshall, he was raised on Madeira and federalism and was not one to stray away from those early prejudices. And we think that's very true in both his private and his public life. I couldn't think of a better way to close out this episode. Ben, Matthew, thank you so much. And for our listeners, I will share links to Preservation in Virginia and the John Marshall House around the release of this episode. It'll also be in the sources for this episode. But thank you all so much again for helping us to better understand the, the life and legacy of this, this figure in American history that isn't always a focus whenever we're talking about presidential history, but I think that the listeners will agree and, and understand had such an impact on this part of history as well as American history in general. And his legacy is still having an impact to the present day. So thank y'all so much for being here. Well, thank you once again, Jerry. I can't, I can't tell you how fun this was for us. I mean, our Saturdays are usually full of like sitting around talking about history, but this was, I mean, this was so much better than that was. You, you get to share the conversation <laughs> with the audience. <laughs> yes, most definitely. Yeah, thank you for giving us an opportunity to ramble to a wider audience for a change. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Great, greatly appreciate it. That, that's what we do here at Presidencies. <laughs> well, and everyone listening, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, stay safe and healthy. Be kind to one another.
and take care, dear friends. The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains, will discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show.